Uh, I hope you like sunrises. I love sunrises, actually. In fact, uh, last weekend, I thought the start of daylight saving happened last weekend, and I turned forward the clocks hoping that I would see a sunrise on Sunday morning, uh, but I got it wrong. Hey. Uh, <laughs> hi, my name's Michael, Michael Kwan. Uh, I'm one of the senior staff workers, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at 1 John, and also in your senior small groups as well, we're going to be looking at 1 John as well. Um, Today, the reason why I started off with the sunrise is that's what John's going to be talking about. He's going to be talking about the, the glow of the coming dawn. He's going to be talking about a sunrise. Uh, can I get you to open up your Bibles? Um, and uh, if you can't see one, can, can you just wrangle next to someone who's got a Bible so you can have a, a look onto the text? Because I think it'll be really helpful if you can actually see the text. And what I've got there is also the outline there. Uh, so hopefully that's going to be helpful and then you're going to see it on the slide as well. The message of 1 John is about eternal life. That's what he opens up with, if you can remember in the reading, back in verse 2. Have a look at there. The life has appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. That's what it says in verse 2. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now, what John does is he summarizes that message. Okay, this is a message of eternal life, that uh, he heard. This is a message of eternal life that he's proclaiming. And then he summarizes it in verse 5. This is what he says. This is a message. This is a proclamation we have made from him and declare to you. God is light. And with that phrase, he's going to use the picture of light and darkness in this section. He's going to open with it and he's going to close this section with it. Have a look at it again. Verse 5. This is a message we have heard from him uh, and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's the opening of this section. God is light. In him is no darkness. Have a look at the end of this section that we came to. Chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. Have a read with it there. Chapter 2, verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because why? The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It's a picture of a sunrise. It's a picture of darkness passing and the light arriving. I mean, we sort of... Pretty familiar with the theme of darkness, aren't we? Uh, I mean, when you think darkness, you think bad, you think evil, you think sin, you think evil and fear. In fact, John in his gospel in chapter 3 says this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, that men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Darkness hides, darkness shrouds, this is where evil happens. In fact, about 10, 15 years ago now, uh, you know DJs in the city, David Jones in the city? There's a big blackout, apparently, that happened in the city that blocked, blacked out the whole blocks around, around the CBD. And during the 10 minutes that there was a blackout, apparently David Jones lost about $20,000 worth of stock. Under the cover of darkness, sin and evil happened. I go to the local neighbourhood watch because my parents forced me to, but I go... And one of the things that, that uh, the coppers always say is that, hey, you, you want to decrease the amount of, of robberies that happen around the place? You make sure that your front yard's well lit. You cut back the bushes. In the light, 
everything is seen. In the darkness, robberies happen. In the dark, evil happens. Well, here in 1 John, it's not particularly about robberies and being a thief. It's talking about destructive behaviours that lead to breakdown of fellowship and relationship. It's about the cover-ups and the lies. And whereas darkness is about living privately and secretly in a covered fashion, destroying relationships, light in 1 John is going to be about living in an open way, freely, honestly, truthfully, loving one another. It's a thing that enables you to have fellowship with each other and with God. See the contrast? What John is going to say in this section is it's like a picture of a sunrise. The darkness is passing. The light has come. And he's going to make the point that those two things are completely incompatible. You, You can't have both of them. It's one or the other. Light and darkness are incompatible. Have a look in verse 5. This is a message we've heard and declared to you. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Not even the skerrick of darkness. Light, darkness, incompatible. Fellowship and darkness is incompatible. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, verse 6, we lie and do not live by the truth. Fellowship and darkness are incompatible. And truth and lies. Truth is about light. Darkness is about lies. That's incompatible. Well, let's have a look at these things in detail. So we're up to second point in our outline. Darkness. Walking in the darkness. And the thing that John makes really clear in this letter is that we're enmeshed, we're entangled in sin. We're caught up in darkness. We're caught up in sin. We're caught up with things. And the problem is, although we're caught up in it, we tend to lie about it. We avoid the truth. We try to deceive ourselves and we deceive other people. And so that's hypocrisy. And what's more, we don't try to just self-deceive. We don't deceive other people. We try to trick God and hide from him. That's called foolishness in the scriptures. And you'll see this with the little phrase, if we claim. But one of the things about reading 1 John is that you just see repeated phrases and repeated sentences that happen all the time. You see it in verse 6, you see it in verse 8, you see it also in verse 10. Have a look with me. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Don't deny it. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Get the truth. Verse 10, if we claim, there's that phrase again, we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. Because God said we have sinned, you see, and his word has no place in our life. What 1 John is saying really clearly in this section about darkness is that we're enmeshed, we're entangled in it. No use in saying that we haven't. If we claim to be without sin, we're fooling ourselves. We call God a liar. That's stupid. There's no good denying it. And yet we're so good at it, aren't we? We're so good at it. We say things like, you know, when we sin, oh, well, it didn't really matter. Everyone's doing it. Uh, Frankly, nobody takes it seriously. Or we say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Just one more time, that's okay. Or it wasn't fair. There wasn't really an alternative. I was forced to do this. I was just a bit weak at a time. I'm not strong in that area. It's not my fault. We tried to hide. We tried to bury it. 
we try to forget it. And it's not just ourselves. We're in a culture, we're in a milieu where, where we, we're trying to say, hey, look, you know what? We're okay. Human beings are okay. We live in a society that says no, it's not our fault. Blame someone else. Blame something else. It all came back from Rousseau, of course. For those of you who do philosophy, those of you who do um, English and, and, and history. Rousseau who said, man is naturally good and it's by our institutions alone that man becomes wicked. See, human beings, we're basically good. The problems are the institutions. And we know that that's not true. Rousseau himself lived a wicked and terrible life. He was a dirty old man. He used to seduce young women. He bludged off his friends and became a drunkard. He fathered several children who he placed in institutions and he knew that by putting them in those institutions they'd be dead within 12 months. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a womanizer. He was a drunkard. But he said that he was good. It's just the institutions. You don't have to go to Rousseau. You just read the newspapers and you know it's true. You know that the world is not the way it is, not just because of institutions and because of people. It's because of the people. The story about Jill Ma being murdered, that shouldn't surprise us in, in some ways. It's horrible, but it shouldn't surprise us. You know, the, the, the right and normal reaction should be you parking your car in Newtown and as soon as you leave, you lock the car. Because you know what's going to happen when you don't lock it. That's a right response. Okay, the world in sin, there's no good denying it, but some of you say, well, I'm just not as bad as other people. Okay, I, I am a sinner, I'm just not as bad. But here it's saying there's no bell curve. Don't compare yourself laterally with other people. Compare yourself with God who is light. The picture that you should have here is sort of like standing in the sunshine for ages, looking up in the sky and suddenly going indoors into a darkened room. You know how even when you turn on the lights, everything is just a little bit fuzzy and it's just not as bright as being outside? That's what it's like. Don't say you're good and compare yourself to Adolf Hitler or something like that. The reality check is stand next to God for a while. Meditate on his life, his goodness. Don't be an idiot and make a nice paper aeroplane and boast in front of a NASA scientist and say, whoopee, look at what I've done. Don't, if you can go back in time, go, go up to Michelangelo and, and have some of your sick drawings and say, isn't this beautiful? Stand yourself next to God. What this section of 1 John is saying is that we're enmeshed and we're entangled in sin. Most of us want to deny it. And John says, don't deny it. Don't deny it. Of course, one of the greatest tragedies is that if you don't come to terms with your sin, you actually miss out on the help that God offers us. You see, if you live in the light, what is your response to sin? What is your response to sin if you live in the light? It's not denying it. It's actually confession. You see that in verse 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He's the opposite of hiding. He's the opposite of denial. It's, it's not concealing. No, it's opening up. Why? Because God is faithful. Because God is just. And he will forgive our sins. 
He wants us to confess and be open with it. One of the things I know with my kids is that you, you, you actually got to offer forgiveness before kids will come clean. If they know that they're going to get into trouble, then often they will hide, actually. And the great thing here is that with God, there is bountiful forgiveness. There's bountiful cleansing. And not just for some of us, but for all of us, all our unrighteousness. And what's more, the response of those living in the light to sin is not just confession, it's understanding the work of Jesus. Have a look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, what happens? We have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is abundant forgiveness in the light. There's abundant forgiveness in God. And it's not an encouragement to go on sinning, but if we do sin, the risen Lord Jesus is going to be our advocate. He's going to speak on our defence. It's sort of like standing in, in, in court, sitting in court, and we've got the accuser against us, and Jesus standing up as our defence counsellor, arguing our case. And he's not some, you know, really ritzy lawyer that you've got to pay a million dollars for. I'm so sorry, I'm sitting in front of Ryan who's doing law, but, you know, hey, we, we love lawyers, right? But, you know, they charge the earth. Jesus does it pro bono. Not only does it pro bono, he actually pays for us. He pays. He pays for our sins when he does it. When we do it, when we do our sin. He pays for it in his death. And, and the little phrase there, he's a sacrifice of atonement, says that he's a propitiation. He actually turns aside God's anger. He turns aside God's wrath. By Jesus' death on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. By Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he satisfied the requirements of the courts. By Jesus' death on the cross, he turned aside the anger of the judge. Some of you might be aware of your sins, actually. Some of you might be deeply aware of how sinful you are and you're racked with guilt. And you know what? The accuser is going to stand up and he wants to accuse you of all the sinful things that you've done. The guilt that you've mired yourself in. And what this passage says is, it doesn't matter. Jesus is your advocate. And Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to say, on that last day, I've died for you. I've died for me. There's nothing that the devil, nothing anybody can hold against you or me. The court case is over in a second. It's over even before it started. Have a look back in chapter 1 in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You want that feeling of cleanness? That cleansing from all sin and guilt? It's here. It's here. The funny thing is, though, if you look back in uh, verse 9, it's a little surprising. And I want to spend a little bit of time just unpacking this a little bit. Because it says here, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the thing is, you guys have been Christians for so long, you read that, and it's it's perfectly okay. 
But I guess if you were rewriting it, not that you want to rewrite the Bible, right? But if you were rewriting it, you, you probably want to say, God is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. Not God is faithful and just, but it's about his mercy, his graciousness or something, isn't it? His justice would be to actually punish our sins. How do you make sense of that? Well, here's a couple of pictures of, of a couple of fairly famous people. Some of you mightn't be aware. And let me illustrate what the difference between justice and forgiveness is. Right? So the, the guy on your left is a guy called Rudolf Hess, um, who was you know, Adolf Hitler's right-hand man, really, in, uh, in Nazi Germany uh, during the Second World War. Uh, bizarrely, he, he, was, he parachuted into Scotland somehow, and he was captured by the Allies. He was kept in prison up until 1987. So from the time he was captured in 1941 to the time he was actually released, uh, sorry, to the time that he died in 1987, he spent his time in Spandau in Berlin. And for a lot of that time, uh, you know, he was actually alone in that prison by himself. 52 years, dying at the age of 93 years. He paid. There is justice. Justice was done. He was Hitler's henchman. He was put into prison 52 years. Even though there was no one else in the prison, he was kept and he died in prison. There's justice. Not much forgiveness though, is there? The guy on your right is a guy called Ronald Biggs. I don't know whether you know Ronald Biggs, but he was part of the, the great train robbery in 1963. Um, he and uh, his uh, accomplices actually stole 2.6 million dollar pounds. Uh, 2.6 million pounds. If you convert it to modern day pounds, it'd probably be about 40 million pounds, which in Australian dollars is about 63 million dollars or something like that, right? That's a big train robbery. He ended up uh, going to prison, but he escaped to prison. To, to go on the run for about 36 years of his life, he, he went on the run. Uh, firstly, he lived the high life in Melbourne, if that's possible. Um, and then he went to Rio in Brazil and lived the high life there. Um, and, and there he fought the extradition orders and, and he actually became a famous celebrity at that time. See, the, the way that he argued for his extradition orders wasn't saying that he was innocent because he knew that he was guilty of sin. He argued on the basis of forgiveness. On compassionate grounds, he should be released. However, to argue for forgiveness, to release him, would be to ignore Jack Mills. Jack was a train driver who was bashed by those train robbers, never able to work again, suffered depression, ended up dying early because of those things. The media, of course, forgave Ronnie Biggs, that wrote the biography and sold lots of publishing rights, all sorts of things. Interviews everywhere, paid for his story, made him to a celebrity. Jack Mill's son, John, said, I deeply resent those, including Biggs, who have made money from my father's death. There's forgiveness, but justice wasn't done. How can you have forgiveness and justice on the cross? There at the cross, God's justice is done. God's not going to sweep sin away under the carpet and ignore it. The price was paid. And yet because Jesus died on our behalf, we have forgiveness. And in the cross, we have justice done and our forgiveness secured. 
And have a look again in verse 7 and verse 9. Very important little word. The word all there. All sin. All unrighteousness. God, by sending his son to die for us on the cross, paid for all our sins, all our unrighteousness. We secured both justice and forgiveness on the cross. And what this section of 1 John is saying is that, you know what, we deceive ourselves when we say we haven't sinned. It's stupid. It's dumb. There's a condition in hypothermia called paradoxical undressing. So what happens is, is when in, in people who, who, who suffer from hypothermia, getting really, 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 really cold, right? One of the things that strangely happens is that they get deluded. And, and they get hallucinations. And they think that they're actually not cold anymore. And they think that they're burning up with heat. So about 50% of mountain climbers who are found uh, dead from hypothermia, they're often found about 10, 15 yards away from, from, from where they were, half naked. It's an amazing thing. About 10, 20 metres away from the tents. Even though they've been freezing to death, their brain tricks them and think that they're burning up. Such is insidiousness of hypothermia. I think God in 1 John is warning us about spiritual hypothermia. You think that you're fellowshipping with God and you keep on sinning? Don't be stupid. Own up to the reality. Own up to the reality of sin in your life. And look to God as the one who's the light, who's fully just, who can actually secure your rescue who brings forgiveness and justice. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us. Well, the contrast, of course, comes in living the light. And that was introduced way back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by faith. But if we live in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We have purification and cleansing from sin. That's the nature of who we are. Christians aren't perfect. Christians are forgiven. Our sin has been dealt with. Our identity is as Christians that we're forgiven people. We're in the light not because of moral achievement. We're in the light because we've been cleansed from sin. We've been forgiven. But being in the light doesn't mean that you don't do anything, that you let go and let God or something like that. That's not how it works. Have a look at those little phrases that start off with whoever claims. You'll see it in verse 4, verse 6 and verse 9 of chapter 2. And it's not always translated the same way, right? So in the NIV I have, in verse 4 it says, the man who says. In verse 6 it uses the phrase, whoever claims. In verse 9 it says, anyone who claims. It's the same phrase. And unfortunately it's been translated in different ways, so you don't see it. But you see it here. Whoever claims, in verse 4, whoever claims I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him, must walk as Jesus did. Verse 9, whoever claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Do you want to walk in the light? What does walking in the light look like? Well, it means doing his commandments, 
It means following Jesus' example. It means not hating your brother. What are these commands that John's referring to? What's the example that John is referring to? What's this about hating your brother? Why does he put it here? What's this contrast between light and darkness that he's talking about? I think you actually get it in verses 7 and 8. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, yes, and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It's an old, old command. It's an old command that you probably heard right in the beginning. It's in the Old Testament scriptures even, not just at your conversion. It's there in Deuteronomy. It's there in Leviticus. It's about loving one another. That's what the Old Testament says. It's as basic as that. And Jesus could say, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God, loving one another. But of course, it's also a new command, isn't it? It is new. The one that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. Do you remember that? After washing their feet, he said, a new command I give to you Love one another as I have loved you, so you, uh, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men, everyone, all people, will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's the example. That's the command. That's why it's so different to hating your brother. The mark of a group of Christians, well, what is it? Is the mark of a group of Christians wearing the cross? No. It, it's not about externals, is it? Is a mark of Christian having a fish sign or something? No, that just probably means that you're a Pisces and born in some weird month or something, right? No. We don't identify ourselves by externals. We're not like people, who, Muslims, who, who, who dress in particular ways to identify themselves. The mark of a Christian is love for one another. That's how you know it. That's the fulfilment of God's love in sending his son into the world. To create a new people who are not only forgiven, but actually would love one another. Followers of Jesus live in the light. They've been transformed by the light of God's love. They just love to love one another. That's what it's like. And that's why I love this picture of a sunrise. The sun is rising, the beams are shining, and it's brighter and brighter and brighter, and it lights up our homes and where we live, and we don't need our lights anymore. We just reflect it, we enjoy it. We live and bask in that light. You know, there's no use when the light's shining to turn on your torch, because it doesn't do anything. And yet sometimes, the world's reaction to darkness is try to shine a light in, in, in the full sunshine. It's useless. It doesn't do anything. It's almost like trying to change John 3.16. You know that famous passage, John 3.16? Yes? People try to change it. They go, for God so loved the world, let's have a new education system. For God so loved the world that he got rid of Julia Gillard. For for God so loved the world... We we try all these things, which are just like shining a a, a torch, a, a, a crummy... Two battery torch in the bright sun. And God said, no. 
The way to overcome darkness is his light. God is light. And he sent his son into the world who demonstrates that love, who is love. And it's reflected in us as we love one another. In Christ, love has taken on blindingly new proportions that God would become a man in Christ. Not just a man, but he would go through all that he did, died and rose again for you and for I. And actually makes all other sorts of love pale into insignificance. And we reflect that as we love one another. An outsider comes in, would they know that you're a Christian group? Because Jesus said, by your love for one another, you'll know that they're my disciples. I was just remembering this early this morning, actually, in the Stepping Up in Leadership course. But as I was remembering that the first uh, person who became a Christian in our international student ministry, uh, it was a girl by the name of E, uh, and she got married a couple of years ago to one of the local students, Bryce. Um, so, but it's not the way to get citizenship, right? Bad. Don't, don't even think that. Um, but it's... Because M just reminded me of a story earlier on. Um, but uh, it, it, I was asking her, though, how did you become a Christian? Or what was the process that was involved? Thinking that, you know, she'd talk about the greatness of EU Focus and my brilliant talks in Mark and wonderful Bible studies I led in Colossians or something like that. No, the thing that she said was... Michael, the thing that really attracted me to Christianity was that day when I was waiting outside Carswell, waiting for focus, and you sat next to me and you saw my reader that I had for international business studies or whatever it was. You helped me understand what the questions were. You helped me work through how to answer those questions and structure it. That was really significant. I was thinking, Really? It's that love that you show for other people. That, that demonstrates that you're God's people, actually. Yes, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, is, it, that's central. Please don't hear me say that that's not important. But do you do that in love? Do you care for one another? Do you turn up to things? Do you do what you, what, what you say that you'll do? Do you look out for each other? Well, this section actually comes to a conclusion. We actually didn't read it. But if you look in your, script, uh, in your Bibles, in verses 12 to 14, there's this wonderful poem. It goes, I write, I write, I write. In verse 12, I write to you. Verse 13, I write to you. Verse 14, I write to you. Uh, I write to you. It, it, that gets repeated six times. He writes to fathers and children and young men, and he repeats it to children, fathers and young men. What does he write about? Verse 12, forgiveness. You, you have forgiveness. I write to you, why? Verse 13, because you know God. You've overcome the evil one. You know the Father. Verse 14, knowing God is again mentioned. The word of God lives in you. Again, overcoming the evil one is mentioned again in verse 14. See, these things are mentioned as blessings in the rest of the letter. Why is John writing this? It's not to rouse on you. You should love each other more. He's saying, well done. He's not writing because he's critical of them. He's writing to encourage them. The great victory over Satan that could be seen in their lives. They're living it out. And you know what? Sometimes I feel like the Asian parent who wants to go to their kids and, you know, who got 99% and go, so where's the other 1%, right? Don't do that. That's terrible. And one John, 
John is saying, well done. And you know what? Well done. Really. Isn't it amazing when we come in week in, week out and public meetings set up for us? People have done that incredible task of walking Hercules up the hill every week. Up and back. Setting up public meetings, printing the outlines, folding them for us. People standing, ushering, welcoming welcoming us with a great smile. People who follow us up when we don't turn up. You know those phone calls that we get from people if we don't turn up, from our small group leaders. Those small group leaders who spend hours and hours preparing things to teach the Word of God. You know, it's it's nice sometimes. when You know that whole filling out car thing and the background music? Now, some public meetings, it takes ages to shut you guys up. That's great, actually. Because this is so different to a lecture where, where we just come in, suck out what you want, and run away. That's not what we're on about, actually. Yes, we sit under the Word of God and learn from each other. But we're about each other as well. And isn't it a disaster when you sit at public meetings and you don't even know the person who's sitting next to you? Don't do that. And what John is saying, well done, you love one another. Thank you. Thank you for praying for one another. Thank you for giving your money. Thank you for helping out near you focus. Thank you so much for helping out in public meetings, hanging around afternoon tea and chatting to one another. And John wants to encourage you that you're living in the light. It's testimony to the fact that your sins have been forgiven. It's testimony to the fact that you know him from the beginning, that God is light. But the next little bit of John that we're not going to get into is a bit of warning as well. And it goes, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. From verse 15 onwards, John's going to introduce this concept of the world. In fact, the world, the word world happens 23 times in this last part of, of the book of John, only of which one occurs in chapter 2, verse 2, I think. So, light and darkness, those terms don't appear anymore. The world, that's the concept that happens from now on. And you say, what's the connection? Have a look, see that, verse 17 there? The world and its desires pass away. What's happened to the introduction of 1 John? The light has come, the darkness has passed away. What's the context for the rest of 1 John? The world is passing away. And in some ways we've come around to a full circle. As the darkness is passing away, so the world is passing away. And it's in this context, you Christians, it's in this context that you people who live in the light, that's how you should live. I said earlier that this is going to be a series of integrated studies. So for those of you who are involved with senior small groups, we're going to be doing Bible studies on 1 John in our senior small groups. Uh, for those of you who aren't, well, you just need to read 1 John. That's all good. Right? But here's how it works. We're going to talk about, we just talked about the glow of the coming dawn, this incredible sunrise that we see. Darkness is gone, light has come. But the context is that we're going to live in the world and we're going to do things in the world. And one of the things is, in the world, the Antichrist has come. Who is his Antichrist? What is his Antichrist about? Well, that's what you're going to do in your small group. The second talk next week, we're going to talk about the sun, the sun, and being sons, right? That is, it's the identity of Jesus as the Christ, right? Not anti-the-Christ, but understanding who he is as the Christ. 
that God the Son became the Son of God, and our inclusion in Him, that's where we get our sonship and can do all these things. In the context of the world, we're given the Spirit. But one of the things that John says is, you're given the Spirit, but you make sure you test the Spirit. And that's what you're going to do in your small groups. The last talk we're going to do here is a word of assurance, actually, that comes in the word end of 1 John. How do we love courageously in this threatening world? Well, we have assurance, and we're going to see what that looks like. And then in your small groups, you're going to explore some of that idea of what loving each other looks like. Well, let's finish up, because I think it's a great place to finish up, looking at this picture of the sunrise. It's an exhilarating thought to return to. Jesus, through his love, has ushered in a whole new kingdom of love that is already shining. And just like the dawning of a new day, you know when you get the sunlight that hits the top of the mountains, top of the trees, top of the roofs? That's what's happening. And that light is shining. And God's people today, we reflect that light. We're the first signs of the day to come. It's our wonderful privilege to live in the light because the kingdom of love has already come. Its truth is seen in the light, in God, in our Lord Jesus Christ because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It's in this context that we love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you so much that the light has come and that you yourself is light. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that we can see the light, especially uh, in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Father, we pray that we would uh, confess our sins and deny sinfulness uh, and not do it. And Father, uh, trust in you and live in the light by loving one another. Help us to do that all the more as the semester closes and it just gets more difficult and more pressured. Help us to continue to love one another in that context. And we pray in Jesus' name.